was close. Okay, so thanks so much, Don. Um, yeah, hi there, my name is Stephen Day. I'm the director of the Center for Economic Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we are. Thanks for having me. The, the little activity I had you do, write down eight wants or goals that you have. We're gonna address that in just a little bit. So hold on to that, we're gonna, we're gonna use that, but not exactly at this exact moment. So, so as the title is, Choose Today, uh, A Christian's View of Economics. That's an intentional title, is A Christian's Ones. And just my, my, my thoughts on one little part of, of economic thinking. And I, I'll tell you what, I have a pet peeve on when people purport to judge or comment on an entire discipline of thought. Because it's so huge and, 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 and it gets under my skin like, who are you? But here I am today doing that exact same thing. But I have part of a reason to do that is because my job, unlike, unlike most economists, is, is not just to take some kind of economic methodology and use it to solve a problem. My job is to teach teachers how to teach economics. It's really meta. And so today, we're going to help you uh, gain, hi there, come on in, start just sort of the basics of economic thinking, what it's good for, and, we ho and I hope um, pose a, a little bit of a problem or a conundrum as it relates to Christian thought. And my computer just decided that it was going to restart for backups and patches. <laughs> Does anybody have a definition for what the study of economics is all about? Yes, sir. How people interact with each other. How people interact with each other. That's, that's a really good definition. Yeah, yeah. Any more? Good. And fortunately, nobody said how to write a check. I get that a lot. Um, yeah, economics is ultimately the, the study of how people make choices given scarce resources. And to, to go along with your definition right here, um, one definition that's been given is the study of how people trade, how they interact with each other as it relates to resources as well. So that's an excellent definition. The study of how people make choices given scarce resources. And one thing that, that I love about this particular way of thinking is that what we, what we do and we think economically is we take scarcity really seriously. And then we take people's opportunities as a result from that really seriously as well. Um, definition of scarcity is this. When you don't have enough resources to meet all your goals. And look at this. I just had you, right before we started out here, write down a bunch of goals right there, didn't I? Okay. So let, let's just do a little, a little activity here so that you can really feel kind of the bite of scarcity and know why this, this makes our particular way of thinking different. Um, what I want you to do is go ahead and I had you write down six, or I'm sorry, eight wants or goals that you have. What I want you to do is rank those. One through eight with number one, being your really highest one, number eight being one that eh, maybe you could, you know, that is at the bottom. Maybe you could do without it. There you go. You can use that. I'll give you just a second to do that. So of your eight wants that you just listed and ranked, if you could only have four of them, which four would they be? So what I want you to do is put an X next to the four that you don't get. Put a little check mark next to the four that you do get, okay? That's when it starts to hurt a little bit because you actually have to, you actually see yourself actually losing something. 
Okay, I'm going to call on somebody in a second so we can get a little crowd feedback and see exactly what it is that you what it is that you picked. Um, Michael over here, um, can you tell me uh, what, what's a what's a, a thing that was lower priority that you crossed off? Uh, lower crossing off. I uh, changed the oil. Change the oil, okay, <laughs> great. And, and what, what's a higher priority thing that you said that you do choose? Uh, get caught up in my class. Okay, get caught up on your class, great. So, so changing the oil is something that probably is not going to get accomplished, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, great. That's a real life thing. We actually do choose not to change the oil, even though we should. Um, let's, uh, can, uh, what's your name? Hannah. Hannah, can you tell me uh, what's a, a low priority thing that you chose not to get? Uh, finishing a book. I'm supposed to be reading. Okay, yeah. What was the book? Uh, Who's Afraid of Modern Art. Okay, yeah. What, what, what is a high priority thing that you did choose that you get? Uh, paying back my student loans. Yeah, paying back student loans. Okay, yeah. Very high priority. Um, can you uh, actually just share with the person sitting next to you right quick, what is, uh, what, what's a, a low priority thing, what's a high priority thing, just so that we're talking with each other, okay? You may talk. <laughs> All right, so... What was the last thing that got crossed off for you? What was, yeah, what was option number five? Budget my expenses better. Budgeting your expenses better. That's the thing that's not going to get done, is it? What, what was the last thing in? The last thing in was uh, finding a job for post-graduation. Okay, boy, finding a job. There's a lot of things more important than that, too. Huh? Man, <laughs> tough life. We, okay, so notice here that you know, as you can see, this, this is the bite of scarcity right here, isn't it? Scarcity is that you've got a lot of really important things. I didn't even ask him all of his priorities, but look, we know that finding a job, that's going to get done. That's important. He's got to do that. And then budgeting how he's going to spend that money so that he actually keeps it into the long term and allows it to grow and flourish. I can easily see that getting bumped. I haven't done my budget in a long time, and I really need to, and it's on my list. I think that's a number five for me kind of as well. So scarcity, you, real feel, you really feel the pinch of it when you know there are things that are really important that they just kind of don't get done, right? You know, I, I, what I, I'm doing this with, with people, especially um, uh, teachers, they'll say one of the things that always, they, they want to take that trip, they wanted to get that massage, and those always get bumped down to the bottom of the list because taking care of the kids, finding the job, making the rent, et cetera, et cetera, gets bumped right up to the top. So one thing that, that we do in the study of economics is we study how people make these choices and you see the scarcity right there. And, and as a Christian, as, when I sit back and I think, you know, how is it that I, um, that I honor the Lord with this work? What makes this worthwhile or helpful for anybody? Because I think about that sometimes. You know, am I just here to collect the paycheck? Um, sometimes I, I think about it like this. Is that really another way to say that is you, I'm helping people make the most of their limited opportunities. And I think that economics, like no other discipline, really takes this scarcity problem seriously. And it digs into it, and it says this is an issue. It looks at it from a hundred different ways. And in, in doing so, what it does, it brings into sharp relief, it brings into clarity our opportunities, our limited opportunities. And when you think of it, I mean, some people have more opportunities than others in life, don't they? You know, for whom is an opportunity more valuable? The person who has lots of them or the person who doesn't have so many, right? The person who doesn't have as many. And so, and so this is the way of thinking where we, where we 
look at our limited opportunities and we find out how we're going to make the most of them. Now, what I want to do is go a little bit farther past that generality and look at uh, uh, an approach to economic thinking. So when you leave here today, you've got the basic tools to do what I just promised this uh, you're going to be able to do. Okay, so ready? Let's go. Um, and we are out of order. Okay, because of scarcity, we need to make choices. And my de definition of scarcity, when there's not enough resources to meet all of our goals, all of our goals. Some of the things you wrote down on your piece of paper were not, well, they're probably not, they're not just all selfish things, right? They rarely are. Is there anybody who had a, a goal or a want for somebody else? Yeah, what, what's an example you had there? Um, one of the goals I have is give out a $25,000 scholarship for solving a Rubik's Cube. Give a 25000 25, Give a $25,000 scholarship for solving a Rubik's Cube. That is awesome. That is awesome. Can I, is, is there another example? I love the vision, by the way. I love the vision because, because that's a long-term thing, right? You know, it's going to take some working to get to. Um, and, but we also, has anybody had a really short-term goal? Just one like for today. Reading the book or not reading the book might have been one of those things, right? I always have get more coffee is always one of my goals, and I often accomplish that goal. I find out I get really different answers from people when I say once versus when I say goals. If I say once, I tend to get the, the coffee answers and things like that. So that's why I say both. Um, now, when you make a choice, there's always a cost. Because when you choose an opportunity, you, you also give up another opportunity, right? If your opportunity that you get is to look for the job and you don't have enough time to budget your money, you give up the opportunity to budget your money. What's that called, the opportunity that we give up? Opportunity cost. Some of you remember that from high school and everything good. Okay, so all choices have opportunity costs. And that's the ultimate cost, the, the, the most difficult cost of the things that you get. Every single time you make a choice, you have a cost. When I say choosing is refusing, when you, whenever you choose something, you say, no, I refuse this. You know what? There's about 20 of you here tonight that refused, refused to do something else. But you came here to learn about Christian thought at Scully House. Thank you, thank you. Uh, what would you have been doing if you weren't here tonight? Can I, can I ask you here in the back? What, what was your next best thing you could have done? Yeah, I would have finished cooking. Would have finished cooking. Are, are you going to eat uncooked food? Yeah, so I cooked the meat portion, and now my wife's going to have to cook the vegetables. Okay, you cooked the meat. Your wife is going to have to. Oh, okay. Oh, so, so your opportunity cost wasn't having uncooked food. Is that you made your wife do something? That's right. So that and might have clean. and <laughs> clean. Okay. So this is so making your wife do more work. This is going to have uh, definite repercussions that are going to redound through time. Okay. So wow, I I feel like this is high value for you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what, what's the next best thing that you could have done if you weren't here tonight? I would be catching up on those papers I need to read that I've been putting off. Okay, those papers that, that you need to read or write. Okay, for, for school. Okay, so he is going to get worse grades in his other classes. That's the, he gave up the opportunity to get better grades to come here. Y'all, I am honored. Thank you. Thank you so much. But you really see, again, we're bringing the, the opportunities that we give up into Stark Relief. You always give up an opportunity. Choosing is refusing. Another way to put it is an opportunity cost is an opportunity lost, right? And it seems really negative, and that's why economists sometimes are really seen as the, the, you know, the negative people who are always saying no to things. But that's because we value opportunities so much, don't we? 
All right. Okay, so here's another uh, next step is that people respond predictably to incentives. Um, when we think economically, we take a step back and we say, people are motivated by something. Now, it's commonly thought that this is people respond predictably to money. But that's, but that's not what people always respond to, right? There's many incentives that we respond to that are not just money. And so I think it's really important when you're, when you're trying to think through what makes, what makes people respond to things is that money might be something, getting material things might be something, but that's not everything. I mean, we heard uh, several things in your list here that were not just money-related things, right? You, you might read the art history book because you want to learn about art history. You might, you know, you might want to help your wife cook and clean because you want to have a good marriage. Um, so what we do is that, so this is basically what someone who studies economics does all day long. And you don't have to be a professional economist to do this. You just look at situations in life and you say, what could, what could be motivating this person? What incentives do we give them? If the, um, you know, I had a, a, professor in college you know the first it was a 7 30 a.m class my university had 7 30 a.m classes and the first day of class she said i post all my slides online all the material for the course is there if you know if if that's all you do is read the slides that i post and study those you could definitely get a b plus in the class even if you didn't come to class at all what incentives did she give us Y'all, that was a class that had 300 people in it the first day of class. I went the next day of class, there were maybe 30. 90% of the people in the class didn't go because she gave us the incentive that, you know, you don't know, really need to be here. And those 30 people were mad. They are like, I paid tuition for this class. So people respond predictably to incentives. The guy who won the Nobel Prize in economics two years ago did um, really kind of upset this one a lot because he found out that people are not always really rational. This is Richard Thaler. Found out that people are not always really rational in the incentives to which they respond. Sometimes people do things that seem kind of crazy, some seem kind of irrational. Um, but... Um, for instance, you know, one example is that people tend to value stuff that they already own way higher than stuff that they don't own yet. You know, like people will fight tooth and nail to keep a $10 thing that they have, but they wouldn't expend $10 worth of energy to get a thing that was worth $10, right? You know, there's, there's all these biases that we have. The thing that's neat about that is that people respond predictably to incentives. This still holds up. You just need to expand the incentives that you go and study. It means there's lots of front, frontiers still to study. Um, however, incentives can be affected, number four here, by rules, institutions, and systems. When you change the rules, when you change the institutions, when you change the systems, it can change people's incentives and therefore change what people are doing. And so an example I just had of that was a second ago when, when the, the rules that she gives are don't come to class. You can still get a B plus if you look at the slides. That affects people's um, affects people's incentives. Um, we're all situated inside these systems that have their little rules. Um, our whole country has economic systems. Um, people respond to rules, say, in, in a game of sports. You know, if in the uh, in football, if they start uh, charging uh, pass interference calls more stringently, there's going to be more of those pass interferences called. We've seen a direct. Um, direct change in the way f football is played. The passing game is more important just because they changed the rules just a little bit. 
Um, now here's a, one that I kind of want to demonstrate is, ooh, actually I'm not going to tell you, but we're going to do a little demonstration to get you moving here. I'm going to give you all some candy. And what I want you to do when I give you this candy is I want you to look at the candy. I don't want you to meditate on the candy for a moment and decide how happy it makes you, okay? And you're going to rate your happiness, which results from the getting of this candy, uh, from one to five, with five being the, with, with one, well, with one being this candy makes me miserable, I can't eat this, I'm allergic to this, I hate this, um, with one being that, and then five being I'm just ecstatic, I could not be happier as a result of the candy, okay? So I'm going to hand these out, and then I want you to take them. You may now eat your candy. <laughs> okay. All right, so in the activity we just did, in the first round, we gave you candy, and um, all of you, your, your gross classroom happiness, everybody's happiness that they added up, each person getting their own candy, added up to 51. And then I allowed you to trade, and in the second round, our happiness had raised up to 58. Y'all, this is amazing. I didn't add any new candy to the game. In fact, some people ate their candy between rounds. So there were no new resources. There were no new goods and services. All we did was allowed people to exchange, and people's happiness increased. People's wants increased. You could say people's, you know, if you're measuring that by wealth, if you're calling that wealth, that increased as well. We're going to talk about that definition in a minute. So that's amazing. Is there anybody whose happiness went down? Okay, we have one. Yeah, so what happened there with your happiness went down? I realized that there were Kit Kats in the mix, and I didn't get one. Oh, you realized there were Kit Kats. Okay. Okay. So, so in that one, it's not, that you're, it's not like your absolute condition got worse, but it's that you were, your feeling of happiness decreased because you realized that there were opportunities you were missing. Yeah, okay, so that can happen, can it? That can happen. When the people around you are starting to be better off, but you're not, and you realize and you feel like you're getting the short end of the stick? Yeah, yeah. So that, can you change it? Did somebody share with you? Aw, okay, thank you. Yeah. All right. Um, he's up to a five now. Um, can you do it with cars? <laughs> I have not tried it with cars. That'd be an, this, this cost me $9 to buy this candy, uh, to do this candy. That'd be an expensive activity. Okay, so this principle is number five here, and that's in a voluntary trade, both sides, both traders expect to benefit. And, and the larger of a scope you expand and that you allow people to trade in, the more that number is going to increase because they're able to find those trades that they want. We had a mention earlier that we, that we wish there was dark chocolate. Well, maybe we're going to find a, Maybe there's another group of people studying economics in another classroom that have dark chocolate, right? And so we would trade with them, and your happiness would go up and everything. So, so this, is some, this is a way. You know, in, there's a saying that there's no, free, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. This is the closest thing you get to a free lunch right here, is that you get two people together who are able to put their talents together maybe for making things. You put um, people together who, um, who each have something that the other person wants, and both sides expect to benefit. By the way, so let's say that I'm just sitting up here in the ivory tower, an economist studying people. I don't know y'all. I don't know people individually. Um, I can't say what your preferences are. How do I, how do I know that both sides are benefiting in a trade when people actually make the trade. What would happen if both sides didn't benefit? 
one side would be upset, right? So if somebody came and offered you a deal that you didn't want, and so what would, hap what would happen if you didn't? Oh, you wouldn't do it, right? So the trade wouldn't happen. So this is what we can do. We can take a step back, and, as, and this is, this is uh, one of our methodological tools we have. Just say, did they make the trade? Because if they didn't make the trade, then apparently it's not good for both sides, right? So, so that's, a, that's, a way that you can, that's a way that you can tell that people, are, um, that people are expecting to benefit. Okay, moving on for the very last one is the consequences of our choices lie in the future. And so there is risk. Now this has a, a few meanings. One of them is that you don't try to dig up the past and get a benefit from that. You're going at your future benefit, right? That's a, a fallacy called the sunk cost fallacy is when we try to unearth future benefits. So let me give you an example of this. Let's say um, the state fair was this week. Let's say it was pouring with rain. <laughs> we haven't had rain in like a month. Um, but, um, and this actually happened to me when I was a kid. I remember my, my mom and dad had the, were, had gotten tickets for the state fair. And they were pretty expensive. They were about $8 a person. We had six people in our family, so they paid $48 for the fair. And the, the day before, it rained and rained and rained. And just the whole thing turned into just a big sloppy mud bath. And my mom said, oh boy, it's going to be tough going there, but we have to go even though we're going to be miserable. Why do we have to go? Get your money's worth. Yeah, to get our money's worth because I already have the tickets. She's committing this sunk cost fallacy. She's trying to, uh, get a, she's trying to unsink that $48. Now, my dad, he's an economic thinker, so he said, dear, dear, don't fall victim to the sunk cost fallacy. She did not appreciate when she gets <laughs> lectured like this. <laughs> but, you know, it's a little bit liberating, I think, sometimes to know that, you know what, you did a thing in the past that's gone. You know, it's the future, future costs and benefits that, that you're trying to think about. Also, it also helps thinking about exactly what the risks and what the p possibilities are. Sometimes you just don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, you know, one of the examples of the consequences of our choices lie in the future is um, I, um, I live about a mile north, uh, two, a mile and a half north. And it would be really fast for me to just ride my bike into work every day. Um, but I don't. What I do is I ride my bike to the bus stop. I put my bike on the bus. Bus takes me downtown, and I ride from there. Why do I do that? Well, in order to ride my bike here, I have to cross like the most dangerous streets. The on-ramp to I-64, the off-ramp to I-64, Lee Street, Broad Street. I mean, it's uh, Main Street. It's just it's like... It's like a, a death trap trying to get from my house on the north side to VCU. And on any one day, I probably wouldn't get run over. But if I do this every day for years, right, the risk is I'm eventually going to get hit. And so what I do is that I, I use my, my economic thinking to weigh that and use the law of large numbers and to make the wise choice there to be safe in the long run. Okay? So we've done a couple things so far, folks. We've got a definition that we're going to make the most of our opportunities. We're going to do it by considering the problem of scarcity very seriously. And we've, we've done that by prioritizing our wants and our goals. And we've got these other tools here. Now, um, there is a problem, though. And I want to go back to this idea when we're saying that your happiness score that you made arbitrarily increased 
And I said, so your wealth increased. I'm actually, what we're trying to do is increase. We're trying to achieve our wants. We're trying to achieve our goals. Is, is that a valid pursuit for a Christian? Or let me put this a different way. If we're trying to think of a, of a good society, of a good life, um, is the way that we should be thinking about our resources just, let's just get people what they want. You know, what if, what if people want things that are not good, right? So I wrote this up here. Economics focuses so much on helping people understand how to get the things that they want. We could say to satisfy preferences, to quote Kevin Brown down here. Um, but what if people want things that don't lead to true human welfare and flourishing? You know, we've given a, a, a way of thinking here that's really a system of logic for thinking about human preferences and resources, and it's really pretty a fundamental logic. And so if there's a problem here with the goal, with the, you know, with the, um, with the values of what we're doing or with the, um, the way that we're defining value, then that could be a problem with our way of thinking. So what I want to do is look at some ways that... Um, Look at some ways that I, I think that we can kind of reconcile these things. And I hope also actually um, demonstrate some historical Christian thought that can actually help the discipline of economics here. And maybe some ways that we can think economically about Christian goals and Christian thinking. So, let's think about the, the sheet of paper you've got there where you have your list of wants, your list of goals, prioritizing and tell me if you see anything about prioritizing from this little story from the Bible. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him, welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. That's Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. Um, what I want you to do is talk to each other for just a second about um, some ways that you see or don't see the economic prioritization in this parable. Okay, what did you have here? You guys had a good conversation over here. What did y'all say? Um, we essentially were talking about how Martha seemed to prioritize serving and housekeeping above listening to Jesus, while as Mary had the reverse priorities in order. Okay, and, and serving and helping people is a bad thing to do, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. No. So it's not a. So. So that's exactly right. Um. What? Why? Um. Why would Jesus chastise her for serving? Someone explain that to me. I'm not sure it was for serving as much as it is for not listening to him. You know, I don't think he's. I think he appreciated Mary's attention and listening to what he has to say, and would have liked both of them. But she chose to prioritize the serving aspect of being a hostess. 
Okay, yeah, wonderful, thank you. Is that any other follow-on comments to that? I mean, it seems like Martha maybe wanted to listen to Jesus, but it says she was distracted by serving, and Jesus doesn't chastise her for serving, but for being anxious and troubled. Mm. So maybe that's the issue, is her being anxious about getting everything done instead of prioritizing a thing and then sticking to it and not being anxious about it. <laughs> yeah. Does, does Jesus chastise Martha for, for what she's chosen, or does Jesus chastise Martha for comparing her work with Mary and, and her going to Jesus and saying, Mary, or, you know, going to Jesus and saying, you know, Mary's done something wrong. Mary's done something wrong. Don't you care that my sister's left me to serve alone? Is, uh, you know what I'm okay, saying? Okay, so yeah, maybe there's this aspect of her, her motivation in there too. Yeah, okay. Okay, so very good. You know, I mean, I, I was being a little provocative in there. I mean, I don't feel that he really chastises her. Because um, you notice that, notice that he's very gracious about it, though. I mean, he, he says, Martha, you're anxious. I mean, he, he, I think he kind of levels with that, you know, that he's, he's concerned about her that she is troubled. Um, but the emphasis here is on not that serving is a problem, right? But there's something way more important than serving going on. Let me actually, and I think there's another, uh, th this next parable I think can elucidate that a bit more for us. Um, you know what? Okay, so for this next parable, it says, from Luke 14, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. He sold everything he had so he could afford it. Okay, so what we see in these two parables is that Presumably, all the things they have include some good things, right? But those things are nothing compared to the treasure that he finds. Nothing compared to the pearl that he finds. And I think what, what Jesus is telling Mary and Martha in the former story is that, look, there is a great treasure. There's a great pearl here, and it is me. In fact, you, you, know, us, you know, we would never say something like that. Jesus said something like that all the time. He was always going around emphasizing to people, guys, you know, I'm the, good. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the greatest good you can have. And I encourage you to go back and read the Gospels, all four of them. It always, it always astonishes people. People are always like, wait, wait, how can you, how can you, you can't say, right? Um, but, well, actually here Jesus says the kingdom of heaven. So you see it applied both to Jesus himself and also to the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, the kingdom of heaven, you know, when God's kingdom comes and he lives with us in the person of Jesus and every square inch of existence is justice, right? I mean, would that be worth selling all the thing, everything that you have to get? I, mean, I think people would say yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so what you have here is prioritization. And let me and you can see this all throughout the Bible. There's um the theologian Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, um 
North African bishop in the 4th century AD, he, he explained this theme in the Bible uh, like this. I'm going to read this quotation. He basically says, don't let the good be the enemy of the perfect. And this is backwards from our normal idiom that we have, where we don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But this is talking about the highest good. So let me read this for us. Augustine wrote in his Confessions, For there is a joy that is not given to those who do not love you, he's speaking to God, but only, but only to those who love you for your own sake. You yourself are their joy. Happiness is to rejoice in you and for you and because of you. This is happiness and there is no other. Those who think that there is another kind of happiness look for joy elsewhere, but theirs is not true joy. Then moving on to his book, Cities of God, the City of God, he talks a little more specifically about um, how to prioritize the good. Now, physical beauty, for example, to be sure, is good, created by God. This is how a person looks if a person's good looking. But it is a temporal good, very low in the scale of goods. And if it is loved in preference to God, the eternal, the internal and sempiternal good, sempiternal means always and never changing, that love is as wrong as the miser's love for gold with the abandonment of justice, though the fault is in the man, not in the gold. This is true of everything created. Though it is good, it can be loved in the right way or in the wrong way. In the right way, that is, when the proper order is kept. In the wrong way, when that order is upset. Augustine was really concerned about when people loved inordinately. What's the definition of the word inordinate? It has a way that we usually use the word, but then a way that I think it's more literally. When I say inordinate, I usually mean too much, right? Um... But think about the root word is order. You know, the things are, are to be ordered. And so the good, in Augustine's view, is when you have the proper order of loves, starting at the top with Jesus. You know, I, I chose the, the parable of Mary and Martha because Mary, um, because Martha was obviously doing something that was good. She was serving Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus says, you know, stop that. Don't be anxious. You know, I'm, I'm here. Just be with me. That's what I want, and that's what's going to be best for you as well. Um, that's, the, that's the number one, the top good. And then it flows down from there. Um, and when, a, a couple other examples of quotations on this. Um, Paul's letter to the Philippians tells us, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any, any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think of the, about these things. So after, so in, in Christian thought, in the Bible, in the parables of Jesus, we see first at the top, lock in this love for God. And, and when you see just sort of the amazing, I, I don't want to say self-centeredness of Jesus, but when Jesus, his, when Jesus says, look, I'm, I'm the center of glory here. I'm the highest good and, and, and the kingdom that I'm bringing. I mean, let's look at it this way. Is, I mean, is there any good outside of God that we should be prioritizing or above God that we should be prioritizing? 
Or is there any, um, you know, if he's the fountain of all justice, if he's the fountain of goodness, if he's where love and mercy spring from, then this is the source, right? Um, you know, this is, this is a God who it says is bringing a kingdom where he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye, where justice is going to fill every square inch of creation, where um, there will be no more, where there will be no more death, where there will be no more things that are, wrong or backwards. Uh, this is a time where, um, where God is going to live among us and where um, everybody's choice will be a choice that's a good choice, right? You know, that's the thing that in, in this concept is worth, you know, selling everything to get. Um, and that brings us close to the end of our talk because it, it, it answers the question. It says that, you know, Economics tell is the way that we think economically is to prioritize, and we see and, and this helps me just as an individual who thinks economically and actually that's whose job it is too, is that I remind myself that it's not just about um, the things that might be kicking my triggering my little my desires at the moment. You know, you know first I have a highest and best good in in loving Jesus who loved me first, right, and then on down to find the things that are true, honorable, pure, lovely, and, and with his help to train my loves to love the things that are worth loving, you know? God, others. You know, what, and, and, and if God created us in his image, when we love things that aren't worthy of it, we cheapen ourselves too, you know? When we, when we give ourselves to things that, that aren't worthy of his image, that, that says, you know, we're not using ourselves in, in a way that's helpful either, right? So I think that if we, if we take a step back and are able to say, in the long term, is this worth it? In the short term, is this worth it? Um, and, you know, to, to give an example that I ran into recently, um, I, was, I was talking with some undergraduate students. We're going down below now God, and the very most noble and just things, and going down to a little bit more day-to-day -day prosaic choices. Um, I asked this young man when we were doing an activity like this, I said, you know, so what are your wants and your goals? And he said something kind of similar, actually, to your Rubik's Cube scholarship. He said, you know, I want to open up a nonprofit for, um, for kids to expose them to outdoors through rock climbing. I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, he said, you know, I'm having trouble getting rid of my student debt, you know, and we're like, yeah, you know, that's probably, you know, you're going to have to do that. Um, you know, we can talk about that. But when we went over day-to-day uh, -day choices, he, was like, he said, um, well, one thing I do choose that's at the top of my list is Chipotle burritos. <laughs> I mean, he was very honest. And, you know, I think that if we would, did anybody here, has anybody here eaten at Chipotle this week? Oh, just one person? Okay, I mean, there's a huge long line there every day. They move the line so quickly. And he ate there every day, and he said he got the steak burritos too, which cost a couple, and I think he might have gotten the guacamole. So we're looking at an $11 burrito that he eats every day. And, and I had to be honest with him. I mean, it was a little bit harsh probably in retrospect, but I said, you know, buddy, you've told me that your priorities are to open the nonprofit, you know? But your budget says that your priority in life is to fit as much Chipotle into your body as you possibly can, right? 
And, you know, he understood this, but the, the thing is, is that sometimes it's just hard, you know? But I think that when we take a step back and we, <laughs> when we think about it, when we think economically, when we pray for the Lord's strength, we can understand that we can really start putting our lives in order in, in the way that we want. And I, I, think, and I, I think that he's going to open that nonprofit someday if he's able to kick his, kick his Chipotle habit. So as we wrap up, Christian prioritization, that is Christian economic thinking, means beginning with loving Jesus Christ above all things and then prioritizing other loves accordingly, others, self, and things. Just a couple references. Um, uh, if you want to see some great quotes from Augustine on this matter, look for this uh, page from Brian Hedges. And this is an um, article from Faith and Economics by Kevin Brown that uh, ordered a lot of my thinking on this. The Bible is a source. This is me and my contact information, Twitter handle, Facebook. Please follow us and like us. And thank you so much. If there's any questions, I'll be ready to take them. It's about anything. Sure. So if, uh, if the pursuit of God and the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven is perfect, uh, how is there room for any other loves? Ooh, how's there room for any other loves? So if the pursuit of God is the per and the pursuit of kingdom of heaven is perfect, why doesn't that just fill up everything and just leave us basically, I don't know, in a stasis where we are, are doing like only that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think that it, I look at the, the character of God when, when um, the Bible tells us God is love. Um, that's, a, that's an ontological statement about God, who he is. And it, it helps, um, and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? He is a God that... Um, doesn't just exist doing nothing, and he, he, he wasn't um, imperfect in such a way that he needed to make things. His very nature of love is to be in relationship and to reach out, and he created things. And so I think that um, part of it makes sense that um, one thing that he wants us to do as people who are made in his image is to... Um, reflect not all, but some of his attributes, some of the things that he does. And so um, God created, he tells Adam in um, chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis to tend the garden, to make it grow. Um, he tells Adam to create things. Um, he tells Adam and Eve to grow and to multiply, um, to represent him in the world. Um, he tells people to love one another. I think it represents his character. Um, and actually, going back to what I said just a second ago, um, the aspect of creating things. I mean, there's so much room in our lives as Christian thinkers. I mean, we're at a university, right? To explore, to make things that are beautiful, to appreciate things that are beautiful, to explore the creation that he made and be in wonder of it. And um, I think in, in doing that, it reflects pretty deeply um, not just things he wants us to do, but actually his character. I think it helps us to understand him better. Um, ultimately, he wants us to know him. And I think that that's one way that we can know him.
it might not seem so ideal because you don't even know what your major is at the, at the time, but you know exactly what you want to do. How can you keep your eye on the prize? You don't even know what your major is. You, don't, you know what you want to do when you're past schooling, but you don't, but there's this, but there's something in between then and now that's hazy. Okay. I might actually have to turn off the microphone while I think about that one for a second. Um, that, that's a, that's an, a problem, but it's not nearly as much of a problem as not knowing what the prize is, right? I think that um, what, what many more people do, if I'm guessing undergraduates in the room, probably what is more common is when you've picked a major and you just kind of hope that major is going to turn into something. I mean, that's what I did. And you just sort of, yeah, that's <laughs> well, but, but you have a goal in the scholarship, right? So at least have, um, and well, I mean, I guess you don't know about jobs and employment and everything, but, but what you, but you're, but when you have a goal, for instance, I, I'm going to, again, use the scholarship as, is that what you meant by the prize? No, the oh. prize is to open up like a, do you know what the Alamo is? Like an Alamo? Like a dinner and a show? Oh, uh, Draft house? Yeah, something like that. You mean, okay, yeah. I want to do that, but I want to eliminate the movie part of it and actually do like, like Christian reenactment of the Bible. So like, so like medieval times? Medieval times, but you act out the Bible or you act out people's testimonies. Okay, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean... Now your idea is on... <laughs> yeah. Uh, edit that out. So uh, it. Edit out the, yeah, <laughs> put the copyright on that. Um... I mean, having a defined goal is an amazing benefit, right? Because it, it reduces, remember number six there was the consequences of choices we have lie in the future and so there's risk. It reduces risk to some degree because it reduces the, the risk that you're going to waste your time doing other things, right? So, so if you have the, the goal to open the restaurant, the Christian medieval times, and to, to make the scholarship from the proceeds from that as well and other things like that, then, then it really tells you that you should not do a number of other things that inhibit that goal, right? Um, and so there's a cost for information, right? There's, we call them search costs in economics. Um, to, go, to go try this and fail, to try that and mess up, to go down that path and then find out that it wasn't really worth it, you're much more able to focus your efforts. Um, so you don't know what major you should pick. Um, you know, actually, people are successful in business in a lot of different majors, right? You don't have to be a business major. Um, but you at least start knowing some, uh, you have some idea of connections that you should make, uh, skills that you should have, um, things that you should avoid and not waste your time on, things that you should invest your time on. And that, that gives you a, a step ahead from other people. Uh, in comparison to other people as well. It's kind of vague, but there's a lot of different ways that you can reach that. There's a lot of different paths, you know, but you have, but you have some advantages in your vision. Yeah. Um, one of the things you said that was pretty interesting, I think, was um, it's like when you said something about there will be justice, like, all over. Um, and I'm just wondering for issues like reparations that a lot of people are pushing for, or uh, like taxing the rich, rich and trying to like reduce inequality. Um, like, would you say that your perspective would be that that's the correct approach? Um, 
you know, to create equity among people and that maybe people that need to get taxed or people that didn't have their eyes on the supreme good. Yeah. So, like, what is your... What do, in general, what do I think about reparations? Re- reparations yeah. and then, like, inequality and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it's a big question. Um, there's... So, inequality, it... it often trips up economists. And the reason, one reason why it does is because you can, uh, this, this method of thinking I've laid out here with, um, with choice and how we can analyze choice, um, it often leads to a, you know, a study of how we can um, you know, best achieve that. You know? And that's what the economic models look like. It doesn't tell you, it doesn't tell us anything about what's the optimal or the right distribution of income or resources, which means that sometimes, which means that what economics is often, um, is often left with is not telling you what's the right distribution, but just describing it statistically. Here's how much this quartile has, here much that, here's how much that quartile has, etc. So it can be really kind of um, descriptive um, rather than prescriptive. Um, I think that to to make a, a really really simple model of economy that I think m- most economists could agree on, but it's so broad as to may not be entirely helpful, is just to say that um, we have this value in our society usually that we we don't want people to um, fall behind so much or have some accidents and in, in such that there's no safety net so that people like literally die if um if um something bad happens to them. And then we also have um, the idea through our court system that um, there can be reparations if somebody does something wrong to somebody else. Um, that can, you know, for starters, it can just be the right thing, right? Um, but at the same time, it can create an incentive for people to, to do better and to not, you know, to not commit crimes or injustices against other people as well. So, um, In, in, in that sense, um, I th- uh, many economists could step back and say there can be some kind of redistribution, right? Um, now, what it really gets kind of tricky is when you're saying, um, are we just going to do this really very simple redistribution where you tax a certain amount here, redistribute there, um, but don't guarantee any programs like health care or... Um, I guess healthcare would be the main one where we spend a lot of the federal government money because that's when the government is actually making choices concerning what gets consumed. Um, and then it becomes more complicated. Are you only redistributing uh, to help people who need to be helped? Are you going to make, or is the government going to actually plan what gets consumed? And it's still a third question is to, is that to maybe repair a past injustice or an ongoing injustice? Um, say, with the issue of racial reparations. Um, I haven't given you a really exact answer, but it's plausible. It's something that economists talk about, and and it's within the mainstream of economic thought that there there can be a transfer of resources. It's something that we could do. Um, I I don't want to give you too much more of a specific answer just because I'd want to know exactly what the parameters of the choice were if I was going to really say a lot more. 
Do you have a follow-up to that? I, I feel like it's not a really satisfactory answer. I, well, just for, from your perspective, like, I can't remember the thing you said, earlier, but I thought it was pretty cool. Um, about justice? About justice. Um, and, like, if, if you had a preference for... Like if you had, like if it was up to you. Okay, well, I, I th so here's one way to think about justice is that, um, you know, our, our economy moves for, our economy is enormously complex. You look at the amount of choices that you just made on, on when we rank ordered our choices. And the, the number of choices you make in a particular day about how to manage your resources, I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, it's thousands. Um, and so... I think a lot of the time when people imagine justice, they imagine that um, our systems will, you know, we will have systems where people won't be greedy. But I think that our choices go a lot deeper than that. So I don't think that, um, so, so I think what actually happens is you, you're, you're still going to need to make choices about these myriad things no matter what. Um, but in, in God's kingdom, we'll have a God who is omniscient, who knows everything. He's an omnipotent. He can do everything, and he's um, and he's able to change our hearts such that our choices become choices between good things. Um, you know, I I can't say exactly what heaven is going to be like. You know, you can still if if we were just if we just all wanted good for each other and we all wanted to to make righteous choices and good choices, we could still have problems with scarcity, right? Because when you make a choice, you automatically give up something else. And so by that line of thinking, you could even have scarcity in heaven, right? you got to make a choice between whether you want to sing to praise God or blow a trumpet to praise God. You can't do both at the same time. Scarcity, got to make a choice, right? Um, I have, I'm going to get a phone call from my pastor being like, Stephen, you went on record saying there's scarcity in heaven. I mean, but, you know, in, in, the, in this very, very broad definition of it, right? So... You know, so that, and so sometimes I, you know, when I think about what justice in God's kingdom would be like, yeah, I sometimes wonder, you know, I think there'll still be a lot of stuff to do, you know, if we're still making choices and everything, but, but it, but it is clear that we'll have a king who knows everything and is able to do everything. And, um, these issues that we deal with day to day, where we kind of go around in circles, uh, you know, kind of, you know, inflicting large and small injustices on each other, you know, that won't be there. And, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of really clear descriptions of heaven, you know. Um, it tells us some stuff in Revelation, and it tells us things here and there, but there's not, you know, this, there's not this extended discussion of what it's going to look like. Um, so I wish I could tell you more, but, I, you know, again, I hope I was able to just kind of give some parameters on what it could possibly <laughs> look like. Good timing.